Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week's book is The Blank Slate by Steven Pinker, which was published in 2002. I had already read and enjoyed The Language Instinct, which came out in 1994. I'd been introduced to Chomsky's ideas at university, and though I struggled with aspects of phonetics, phonology and semantics, sociolinguistics and the history of language fascinated me, thanks to attending one of the last schools in England that taught explicit and detailed grammar, I could make my way through some of the more abstruse bits of syntactical analysis and morphology as well. After engaging with Dawkins and Jonathan Wiener's The Beak of the Finch, I had become naturally inclined to believe that language acquisition was at least partly instinctive, so picked up Pinker's first big book in a receptive frame of mind. Teaching had also evoked a deepening interest in cognitive science, the business of what goes on in our minds as we learn, how we absorb ideas and information, how we remember things, how we develop our language. So when the blank slate appeared in Brighton's uh, branch of Borders, I picked it up early and read it during the Christmas holidays. Reading this book felt in ways like coming home. It synthesised for me nebulous ideas that I'd been carrying around for over a decade. It meshed with my existing understanding of evolution and natural selection, and it introduced me to computational thinking, a concept I am still getting my head around 20 years later. The book is divided into six sections and now includes an afterword to the 2016 edition in which Pinker revisits his original hypothesis and the impact of 14 years of increasingly ill-tempered argy-bargy between academics and public intellectuals in the social sciences, philosophy and biology. Pinker has been at the sharp end of much of this. People seem to love him or loathe him. He is definitely a Marmite kind of academic. In the blank slate, his central thesis is that the three key building blocks that have sustained philosophy and explorations of who and what we humans are, are irrelevant or redundant when it comes to a true understanding of human nature. These three approaches are, number one, the blank slate or tabula rasa, the concept that we are born with nothing and it is our environment and experiences that shape us. Second, the noble savage, the idea that we are born good, that there was some golden time when humans were pure and innocent, but that society and its imperfections have gradually corrupted us. And the third concept that he challenges is the ghost in the machine, the notion that our souls are independent of our biological existence and have dominion over our choices and our acts. Pinker comes from a place of scepticism. This is obvious from the calibre of his intellectual cronies. His book received rave reviews from the usual suspects of the new atheism movement, notably Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins and A.C. Grayling. I've read books by them all and I'm in general agreement with some aspects of new atheism. I don't buy into the relentless attacks and undermining of the religious faith of others. I am not anti-God or gods. I am not actively seeking to encourage anyone else to be atheist, so I'm not really a signed-up new atheist, but the fundamentals are there since I read Dawkins in my 20s. I have not been able to believe in the existence of a god or gods. And Pinker is one of this number. He has described himself as atheist but culturally Jewish, 
and I think this does inform the blank slate and his other books. How? To a certain extent, the three concepts that Pinker challenges are all in some way dependent on aspects of faith and belief. But the blank slate provides alternatives to the ideas of the soul, the corruptibility of human nature, and the impact of nurture. There are fair challenges to the four alternatives that Pinker cites, but all four have gained some ground in the 19 years since the book was published in some intellectual circles. Pinker believes in biology and specifically four powerful connections between our minds and our biology. And on rereading the book, I think I still am pretty much in agreement with that, with some caveats. The first form of biology is cognitive science, and in particular, our human love of patterns, information, data. Pinker draws the analogy between human intelligence and computers. If we look at the basic outlines of computational thinking, abstraction, decomposition, patterns and algorithms, we have evidence of humans undertaking these ways of reflecting since we could first record our thinking and being in writing, creating houses, temples, civic buildings, hierarchies and trading systems are all things that have some element of what is now called computational thinking innate to them. We are systematic and systemic creatures, we humans. And added to that, we do not emerge blank from the womb. Babies' minds may not be mature, but they are still complex, ready from around five weeks after conception in the womb to begin their life's work of neural development, building connections between axons and dendrites, sheathing myelin, pruning and reaching out to synapses. This takes us into the territory of neuroscience. Pinker's second pillar or bridge. When I reread this section of Pinker, I realised that this was the area in particular that has fascinated me in my years of teaching since 2002. In the interval, there has been an eruption in the findings of scientists such as Sarah Jane Blakemore, who focuses specifically on the neuroscience of the adolescent brain, and Robert Sapolsky, whose 2017 book, Behave, the biology of humans at our best and worst, explores neural activity in detail and in prose that is still accessible to a scientific illiterate like me. Our brains are quite extraordinary organs in terms of structure, composition and action. Pinker comments on the prescience of Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov, where Dmitri marvels at the way in which even the simple act of seeing something triggers phenomenal levels of neural function. And our brains all have the same geometry, the same geography, and yet each one of us is unique. Even the identical twins who are at once exact copies, and yet will have evolved differently, despite sharing curious quirks and tastes. This takes us to Pinker's third bridge between mind and biology, behavioural genetics. Again, in the intervening years, since publication, there has been an absolute explosion of research and understanding of both the power and the impotence of our genes. For me, the best introduction to what this means was Siddhartha Mukherjee's 2016 book, The Gene and Intimate History. Pinker also quotes at some length the work of Robert Plowman and his more recent research is captured in Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are, from 2018. 
I think the arguments for behavioural genetics are possibly the weakest links, although maybe evolutionary psychology is there too, partly because we're still at such an early stage of really understanding the power of our genes. Plowman in Blueprint claims that our genetic composition contributes far more to our development, personality and traits than the environment. He sees environmental factors shaping humans as unpredictable and random, but Pinker and Mukherjee and other scientists make the point in more recent writing that genes themselves behave equally randomly and unpredictably. Unquestionably, our genes shape us, and our responses to our experiences predispose us to certain reactions. But in the course of moving from one generation to another, heritability itself mutates, and we don't, I think, fully understand how or why that is. That's not to say that Pinker is wrong in ascribing aspects of human nature and behaviour to our genes, but I do think it is still too early in our exploration of what they really mean and how they really affect us to understand what this means for our children or their children. Pinker's fourth and final bridge is evolutionary psychology. This is an area which is highly contestable. In fact, I suppose of all four of Pinker's bridges, uh, well, all four of them fall into that area of high contestability, but evolution, like genetics, is a sticky one, especially when coupled with genetics. These are the areas where bad faith actors abuse ideas and data to come up with infamous theories like the bell curve suggesting that our ethical and political decisions could or should be shaped by categorising and labelling particular groups in our societies, could or should then be used to foster intolerance, discrimination and a limitation of opportunity and of course in some cases, dark cases, life. Whilst natural selection for physical characteristics seems well established and supported by ample evidence of, for example, the life cycles of finches, various types of fish and mammals, natural selection for personality, behaviour and traits seems more tenuous, supported more by anecdotal qualitative tales of, for example, foxes becoming more domesticated the closer they live to humans. There are aspects of human behaviour that seem so deeply ingrained and interconnected, but I am not convinced that they are formed from natural selection. We know, for example, that adverse childhood experiences, ACEs in the jargon, shape cognitive and emotional development. A famous example is the starvation that was visited upon the Dutch uh, in the final winter of World War II, which certainly carried through physically and arguably developmentally and emotionally into the, the next generation. But Pinker and others have suggested that such events, such outlier events, uh, become mitigated after one or two generations. However, when a child exposed to adversity or trauma grows up, the ways in which their child or children, if they choose to have them develop, I don't think it's necessarily likely to be shaped by selection. Pinker gives the example of self-destructive impulses in humans, what he calls personally puzzling drives with cravings shaped by natural selection. He suggests that these impulses have a transparent evolutionary rationale. I am not entirely clear on what that might be. 
The aspect of evolutionary psychology that does interest me is Pinker's reference to anthropology and specifically the theory of universal traits that we share, whatever the variables in our societies and cultures. This comes from the work in the late 80s and early 1990s of Donald Brown, who produced a list of what he called human universals. There are several hundred of these. An example would be dreams or childhood fears, the way we feast, the way we choose our leaders and follow our leaders, magic, music, poetry, tools, weapons. Right across the world, under hugely differing cultures, societies, geography and environments, we share these universals, we recognise them in one another. And if we were lifted from one time to another, it is likely we'd recognise these in those past or future societies in which we found ourselves. These are at the source of our love of travel and fiction, the shock of discovering both the strangeness and the universality of our human condition and existence. Some months after the blank slate came out, Pinker was invited to give a TED talk about the book in 2003, and he identified the two areas which at that stage had caused most controversy, his views on the arts and on parroting. Pinker is a great lecturer, witty, wry, commanding. It is well worth 20 minutes of time. He succinctly summarises his theories and ideas and the opposition to them. However, what is dismaying to me now is that two decades after this book was published, even though Pinker is still fated as one of the 100 most influential and important thinkers of our time, the concepts of the tabula rasa, the noble savage and the ghost in the machine, embodied in identity politics and populism, seem more embedded than ever. In his TED talk, Pinker quotes the post-structuralist gender studies scholar Judith Butler. He does not even get to the end of the single sentence that he has selected for quotation before the audience begins laughing in amazement at the dense, convoluted rhetoric that Butler customarily deploys to support her arguments. Yet currently we are in a world where we seem to prefer obfuscation and a rejection of science clarity and common sense. In the longer term, I hope for our sakes, as humans and inhabitants of a dangerously over overheated earth, we can put aside our dependence on questions of identity and the fostering of antagonism between groups based on nebulous ideas of ghost slates and faux nobility. Next week, a complete change in tone as I revisit a favourite work of romantic fiction and explore my continuing adoration of the world of Jennifer Cruzy, Queen of Snark and small town shenanigans. Join me then.